0: You can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. That'll be page 918 if you're using the Pew Bible. <clears throat> Let me start this way. I would very much like to see revival in my lifetime. And I don't mean what is sometimes called Uh, revival today, like a week of nighttime meetings or something else that's just manufactured by men like that. Um, There's a church by my house, they advertise every year revival on these dates, and I always just wonder, like, how did you know that the Holy Spirit was going to pour out himself on that day? So I'm not talking about that. Uh, I don't mean a 19th century tent meeting or a week-long emphasis or any of the other ways that we might try to reverse-engineer past movements of his spirit. But I would very much like to see true revival. The extraordinary work of God's spirit, by which there is a more than ordinary turning to Christ, a more than ordinary fervor for seeking God, a more than ordinary zeal for his glory. We saw this in our country in the First Great Awakening. We saw it in the 1858 New York revival. We even saw it in pockets during the 1960s. Should... God ever be pleased to pour out his spirit in that kind of way, it will be preceded by the work that we see in our passage today. J.I. Packer, drawing directly from Ephesians 3, says this, Revival means the work of God restoring to a more abundant church in a manner out of the ordinary, Those standards of Christian life and experience which the New Testament sets forth as being entirely ordinary. And a right minded concern for revival will express itself not in a hankering after tongues, but rather in a longing that the Spirit may shed God's love abroad in our hearts with greater power. For it is with this to which the deep exercise of soul about sin is often preliminary that personal revival begins, and by this, that revival in the church, once begun, is sustained. Packer says revival is a longing that the spirit may shed God's love abroad in our hearts with greater power. As we turn to our text this morning, I just wonder, is that how you and I think about spiritual growth? Father, By your Spirit, do a work in me with power. Grow me in the knowledge of Christ's love. Dwell in me more fully. You are able, God, by your Spirit, you are able to do in me more than I could ever ask or imagine. Do it for your glory, God. Church, I wonder if we don't often forget that growth in grace is a work of God's Spirit. It's a work done in power, and the aim of growth in grace is that all of who we are and all that we do would be filled with all the fullness of God. Our text today calls us, calls us, to have a Holy Spirit-sized longing for our continued growth in grace, that by grasping the love of Christ more deeply, we might experience his presence more fully. And as we pray for this kind of work in our lives, we pray to the God who has no shortage of resources, the riches of his glory, and we pray to the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. So, church, as we read, let us long that God would do this work in us more and more. Whether he does that by the ordinary, incremental, and still wonderful grind of steady growth, or whether he does that by an extraordinary outpouring of his spirit in our lives, either way, let us long for this spirit-wrought, Christ-centered, God-glorifying growth. according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you've revealed yourself and your will to us through it. God, as we pray Every week, Lord, if your word is what it claims to be and we confess that it is, if your spirit is active among us and we confess that he is, God, then you can do a work right now to change us, to make us more like yourself. And Father, I feel that acutely this morning, Father, I pray that you would. Now, awaken in us more of a longing after you. Help us now to just shed any kind of ho-hum, half-hearted seeking after you, Lord, and awaken in us a new, stronger desire to seek you. Father, pray that you would comfort us where we needed to be comforted this morning. Convict us where we needed to be convicted. Lord, awaken us where we need to be awakened. Father, do it all for your glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul began chapter 3 back in verse 1 for this reason. And then he digressed into last week's text and something like a long rabbit trail. Now, if you look at 3.14, he picks it back up, returns to his main thought, and picks it back up for this reason. So in that, he's calling back to chapter two. That's his thing that he's referring back to, is the individual new creation of chapter two and the corporate new creation, the new people of God that we saw in chapter two, and then, of course, his role proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. And I think it will help us to see this morning that Paul is doing something that I like to call preaching. Uh, And I'm just going to be honest with you, I hate it when preachers do this today. Um, We'll allow Paul to do it because he's an apostle, and he's writing a letter, and more than that, he's writing a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit. But I think you know what. Preaching is it's when a preacher is praying and then like somewhere along the way they start preaching again. Um, like he started off, he was talking to God, and the next thing you know, he's addressing the congregation. I'm sitting there when I hear this, and I'm like, are we praying or are you talking to, to, to me? I'm I'm not sure. And I know having said that, like a few weeks from now I'll like find myself doing the same thing and you can call me on it. But uh Paul is here relaying the prayer that he prays for the church of Ephesus, while at the same time he's exhorting the believers of Ephesus. So we can note, even from that, that the work that Paul is praying for is a spiritual work that's outside of us. It's a work that we need the Holy Spirit to do in us. Something we should, there's something we should learn from the prayer, and there's something we should seek after in our lives. His prayer begins, as most prayers do, with his address of praise to the Father he is praying to. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. The language there in verse 15 is a little, bit, it's a little bit tricky. So if you have the ESV, you'll have one footnote proposing one way of saying it. And if you have the NASB this morning, it'll propose a different alternate way of saying it. Uh, I, I think that it's the way that the New King James translates it, which would be this, from whom the whole family on heaven, in heaven and on earth is named. To be clear, sorting through footnotes can never just be a matter of like picking the one that you like. Uh, it has to be like what I like can't be the criteria for what I think that the text says. Back in chapter 2, verse 21, Paul used the same words when he said, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So there the same word was translated the whole structure. It wasn't translated every structure. Moreover, translating it as the whole family here makes sense to me because he's been talking about the united family of God. And so it doesn't easily fo- as easily follow that he would go off talking about every family when he's been talking about the whole united family. And last, it's not as easy to understand what every family in heaven would mean. So I say all of that to say I believe Paul still has in view the unity of God's new family. It's the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and in earth is named. Going on there, he says, or it says it's, he named them. In the Bible, to name something is always an exercise of power. So we can see in Psalm 147:4, he determines the number of the stars, he gives to all of them their names. So Paul's opening of his prayer is a statement of God's sovereignty. It's a statement of his power and his fatherhood over all. Going on, he says he goes according to the riches of his glory. He's asking God to grant these requests from God's deep storehouses, uh, storehouse of resources. We've seen before that Ephesians has already emphasized God's riches. 1.7. We have forgiveness according to the riches of his grace. In 1.18, he prayed that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance. And 2.4, God made us alive because he is rich in mercy. 2-7, he did so in order to show off the immeasurable riches of his grace. In 3.8, Paul was privileged to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, and now Paul brings his request to God, asking that he would give them according to the riches of his glory. So Paul is not, and we are not when we pray, trying to bum a few bucks off of a broke friend. We're bringing our requests to the sovereign, omnipotent God of the universe. The one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And you can mark that because Paul circles back to this in the end of our text. We will see that our passage is book ended with God's ability to grant these requests. And Paul then turns to the request that he makes for the believers. First, he asks, By your Spirit, strengthen them in all that they are, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. First thing I would note this morning is that this is a gracious work. Paul prays that God may grant this to happen in our lives. For the Christian, even after receiving all the lavish benefits of our conversion, even after receiving justification, regeneration, adoption, God is still not done giving. He grants us, he gives to us more to grow more and more into his likeness. We are, of course, in the scriptures, commanded to grow in Christ, be transformed. We are exhorted to grow in Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. We must exercise discipline in our growth in Christ. Train yourself for godliness. And it is our duty to grow in Christ. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling But church, let us never forget that though it be commanded, it should still be cherished. Though it be a duty, it should still be our delight. It's a gracious thing that God should grant us to grow more like Christ. It'd be like if I went home today and commanded my children, you will do nothing today but play. It's commanded, but it's still a gift Don't get any ideas, by the way, children. (laughs) Next, so it's a gracious thing. It's something that God will grant and give. But next, note that it's a spirit-empowered work. Paul prays that we would be strengthened with power through his spirit. Your ongoing growth in grace, Christian, is a spirit-empowered work. Your times of personal worship and Bible reading must be times given over, consecrated to God, the Holy Spirit, to do his work in us daily. Though it be routine, he's still at work in you through that. His Spirit meets us, strengthens us in our times of prayerful seeking after him. His Spirit strengthens us in times of gathering together with another believer to help each other grow in Christ. Certainly, certainly we sense the Spirit more acutely on some days more than others, and we should never cease longing for those days of sweet communion to be multiplied. But even when we don't feel it, he is at work in us, producing in us more faith, more hope, more love, more Christ. It's hard for us to stay, like, expectant all the time, but the reality is, is that his mercies are new every morning. His power has not been rationed or exhausted. Church, I just ask us to consider. What might your sanctification, what might your growth in Christ look like if you kept in view that this is a work being done in you with power through the Spirit, through His Spirit? We must pray that He would do the work that only He can do in us, but we must also expect that He will do the work He says He will do in us. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on at the day of Jesus Christ. We must never stop year by year, month by month, week by week, day by day, even hour by hour, never stop trusting his power to change us. I wonder, do you have areas of your life that you've Resigned yourself will never change. Maybe you say, Ha, huh, there he is. How about my whole life? Maybe it's sinful character that no matter how hard you try, it just slips out again. Anger, selfishness, grumbling, so on. Maybe it's a laxity in seeking the Lord. Maybe it's a good work that he's called you to, and you just don't believe that you can stay the course. Somewhere along the way, I think we've all been here at one time or another, somewhere along the way, we grow hopeless, cynical, cold, discouraged. Maybe that's you today, and you feel weak, faint-hearted, or just lazy. If that's you this morning, here's what I ask. Can we begin here? We often will couch our hopelessness, okay, in some pious sounding language of self doubt. We frame it as weakness, it's our inability to change. But the Christian's not called to trust in our own ability. The Christian is called to trust in the Spirit's ability to change you. So when you give yourself over, church, listen, when you give yourself over to that line of thinking, whether it's by weakness or whether it's by hardness of heart, you should tread very carefully. I really don't think that you mean to find yourself saying, God, the Holy Spirit, is not powerful enough to change me. But that's the implication when you say, I will never change. So if you're here today and weak, let me help you. Trust in his power to strengthen you. If you're here today and just faint-hearted, let me encourage you. Trust in his power to strengthen you. And if you're here today and you're just idle, lazy, Let me admonish you, trust in his power to strengthen you while you get after the work of seeking him more and more. Church, let's all commit anew this morning to being a church that prays expectantly that God would change us more and more through the power of his Spirit. It's a gracious work. It's a spirit-empowered work. Next, note that Paul prays that all of who we are would receive this strengthening by the power of his spirit. He says, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We can get a clearer sense of what Paul means by in your inner being by the way that he uses the same words in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. There, the inner being is contrasted with the outer self. He says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. There, the outer self is the body that decays over time, and our inner being is all that's within us that's being renewed day by day. There's one... Writer notes, the inner being consists of all conceivable internal elements, such as what we would call the mind, the heart, and the soul. It's all of us. And then note here how Paul uses the word heart in the same way. We've talked about that in weeks prior. Paul doesn't use heart to mean feelings, or emotion as we most often use it today. Paul uses heart in the Hebrew sense to speak about all of who we are, our mind, emotions, our will. So we can take inner being in our text today and heart to be synonymous. And then we can take it together. The last part of verse 16 and the first part of verse 17 are really just close parallels saying the same thing. Being strengthened by the power of the Spirit in your inner being is the same as so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. How is it that Christ dwells in our hearts? It's by the Spirit. And how do we come to have the Spirit dwelling in us? Through faith. Now, note this. Paul is writing to believers, right? And as believers, they're already indwelled with the Holy Spirit. We saw that in chapter 1, 13 and 14. So what Paul has in view here in verse 16 and 17 is something like what is elsewhere called a filling of the Spirit. We have all of the Holy Spirit all the time, but he does exert his influence over us to a lesser or greater degree at different times and in And in a way that is largely, I would say, contingent on how we are seeking after him for ongoing communion with him, ongoing growth. In the Greek, there are two different words that can be used for dwell there in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So the Greek has a word that could use uh, something more temporary. Like you might say you dwell in a hotel room. It's temporary and and then gone. And then it has a word that's used for a long-term residing. Paul here uses the word for a long-term residing. So that Christ may reside in your hearts through faith. Carson says it this way. Paul's hope is that Christ will truly take up his residence in the hearts of believers, and as they trust him, that's what through faith means, so as to make their hearts his home. And then Carson goes on with an illustration, which I'll just shamelessly steal and adapt to our own life. My wife and I bought our house almost 14 14 years ago now, When we bought it, let's just say we were uh, unimpressed by some of the color selections that the previous uh, owners had made. And so some things had to go right away, right? Pastel-colored walls, those needed to, to go right away. Other things we changed over time. Knock down a wall, renovate the kitchen, and so on. And then still others would be on a list of future things that we would continue changing if we were going to live there much longer. Like maybe one day we would get rid of the lavender color paint in our master bathroom and the hunter green countertops. Okay, maybe those would go one day. Um, But the longer we have dwelled in our home, resided there, the more we have changed it to suit us. In a Similar way, when Christ comes to dwell in us, he sets about renovating all of who we are to be a suitable dwelling place for him. Some things had to go right away. Other things changed slowly. Maybe during a season, many things changed a great deal in a short time, and still other things Will in the future change as he resides in us more and more by faith, by us trusting him more and more. So, church, do you have areas of your life that you haven't yielded to Christ yet? Areas, do you have ways of thinking? Do you have actions that you need to surrender to Jesus and trust him more in? Maybe it's your work life, maybe it's your finances, maybe it's you, how you think about a person, how you think about a group of people, maybe it's how you think about some moral issue, but Christ, by his spirit, wants and deserves all of who you are. So we pray, Father, strengthen us in all that we are. As we continue on to Paul's next request, note that these requests are not like an isolated series of three different requests. Rather, they're progressive. They are like stairs building on one another. They're like dominoes where one thing leads to another. The second request we see for the growth of believers is strengthen us to know the love of Christ. Verse 17 at the end, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. As the Holy Spirit strengthens us in power, as Christ resides in all of us more and more by faith, What is the aim of that strengthening? What does he want us to be strengthened to know? What does Paul want the believer to now grow in? The believer who's already believed in the gospel message. Okay, what's Paul's 201 level class after that? What's his 301 level class after that? It's the love of Christ. Paul says that the believers are already rooted and grounded in love. That is, they already have some knowledge, some experiential knowledge of Christ's love, but he now prays that they would grow in that knowledge more and more. Paul there used a biological, rooted, and a building word picture, the the grounded or established in love. Paul's Prayer, then, is that the Christian, already having some roots in the love of Christ, would grow deeper roots, knowing Christ's love more fully. Or said differently, that the Christian, already established in Christ's love, would build more and more on that foundation with more knowledge of Christ's love. And our text today, as many of you know, is right on the turn of Ephesians, Right, like one through three just unpacks the gospel most clearly. And then four one and beyond, he's going to talk start talking about implications of the gospel or how we walk that out in our life. So after this it becomes more concrete, it's action oriented and so on in in the weeks ahead. But before he moves on to that section, he labors here to show us that all all Christian growth is first internal inside of us before it overflows outward in all of its implications. So whether you're 7, 17, 37, 77, you never move beyond the need to know his love more fully. Before he does something through you, he first must do a greater work in you. And that work is always, always deeper roots, stronger foundation in the grace of Christ. And then after having deeper roots, stronger foundation in his grace, that's what then propels us out and all kinds of thousands of various implications of the gospel. It has to be internal before it overflows external. Church, you can get this wrong in at least two ways. You can make following Jesus a matter of only personal piety that never walks out in the implications of the gospel. To grow and grow internally and never pour yourself out externally. That's to take your light and hide it under a bushel. It's to take what you've been entrusted with and just bury it in the ground. That's an error. James says faith without works is dead, and we'll spend the rest of our weeks in Ephesians pleading with you to take the internal growth of the gospel and walk out in its varied implications. Second, though, you can make following Jesus a matter of trying to do the external Christian actions in a way that is divorced from internal growth in the gospel— This also will not do. For God to work through you, He first must do a work in you. And it must be an ongoing, continual work renewing you in the love of Christ. Okay, you're not, you're not the energizer bunny wound up one time once by the gospel that then just keeps going and going and going. You are in daily need, hour by hour need to be filled up with the love of Christ in order for his grace to produce in you the character that can then go about glorifying God in the world. And always, always, always that renewal in us is deeper roots in the gospel. Look at what he prays. He prays that you would comprehend, that you would grasp with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge paul prays that we would come to an experiential knowledge of something that is entirely unknowable as one author says we can know him truly without knowing him exhaustively because we've talked about Before We're supposed to look on things like that, something that we can never fully grasp. And we're supposed to continuously, ongoing, look at the love of Christ, turning it aside in a different way and look it over and over and over and just be amazed at how big God is. You say the gospel message, Jesus loves me. You say, I already know that. Well, Paul says yes and no. Yes, the Christian knows it and is rooted and grounded in love, but at the same time, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says that you are continually to seek after, by the power of the Spirit, a deeper knowledge of Christ's love, which you can never exhaust. The Love of Christ is simultaneously—this is just so beautiful, isn't it? It's simultaneously on the bottom shelf, reachable to a child. We're teaching them about it right now, back there. And at the same time, it rises to the highest of heights, which we can never fully ponder. Yet we're called to ponder that which we can never exhaust, so that we can be renewed over and over In worship by His love, John Owen says it this way: "says We are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in a holy amazement at His unspeakable love." And that amazement at Christ's love should create in us growing confidence and growing affections for Him. It's out of that that we'll see the third request in just a just a moment. Out of that, we'll see that we're filled with the fullness of God. One more quote from Antioch's good friend Charles Spurgeon. I've read him too, not just Matt, so um, he says, "The distinguishing mark of a Christian is his confidence in the love of Christ and the yielding of his affections to Christ in return." Christian has confidence in Christ's love because they've looked at it over and over and they've seen the heights and the depths and the breadth and the length. I just wonder, does that sound simplistic to you? Like, come on, Tyler. Really? Do you think it's all that simple? Whatever hurdle, whatever trial, whatever temptation I'm facing, you think it's as simple as I need more of the love of Christ? You mishear me. I never said that the love of Christ was simple. The love of Christ is not merely simple at all. It's entirely varied and complex, applying in millions of ways to the contours of your real-life rubber-meets-the-road situation. So the love of Christ is not simple. It's infinite. It's inexhaustible. That's why you need the Holy Spirit's power to comprehend it. That's why you need the Holy Spirit's power to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth. That's why Paul prays for you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's because it's not simple. And I don't mean for a second, hear me, church, I don't mean for a second to downplay the difficulties that you might be facing. I don't even know all of the difficulties in this room. I don't mean for a second to downplay those by proposing just some kind of simple cut-and-paste solution that sends you away with a little Bible verse and says, there, there, be on your way, okay? But on the contrary, I mean for you to look deeply At whatever it is that you might be facing, call it what it is, a spade or spade, without downplaying that or diminishing that, and then know that the love of Christ is deeper still than that. It may take weeks, months, years to work through. You can call me naive, that's fine, but whatever your problem, then Jesus is your solution. Too often, our problem is that even as people of faith, we give only lip service to what he can do in us while we just scurry away to some other kind of functional savior where that's what's actually going to change us. John Bunyan says it this way in his book, All Loves Excelling. It's entirely his book, that thick, entirely about two verses of our text. If his afflictions be broad, here is a breadth. If they be long, here is a length. And if they be deep, here is a depth. And if they be high, here is a height. And I will say, there is nothing that is more helpful, succoring, or comfortable to a Christian while in a state of trial and temptation than to know that there is a breadth to answer a breadth, a length to answer a length, a depth to answer a depth, and a height to answer a height." Church, look to the love of Christ for your relief, for your aid, for your continued growth. Finally, note this. Paul prays that the believer would comprehend with all the saints... This is to be our shared hope corporately as a family. This is to be a corporate confession together. This is a shared knowledge that we should all have. We're all to be growing in this together so that we might also help each other grow in the love of Christ. Again, remember, Paul has, I think that's why it's important to see, Paul has in view the whole family of God. He has the church in view. If you would permit me one more lengthy quotation. I think Tim Lane and Paul Tripp hit the nail on the head here. When we are in meaningful relationships with one another, we each bring a unique perspective and experience to our knowledge of Christ's love. One person has been rescued from a menacing addiction. Another has been brought through deep suffering. Still another has been sustained by God's grace in a difficult marriage. The list goes on. When we gather to share our stories, we see a different aspect of the diamond that is the love of Christ. Together, our understanding and experience of God's infinite love becomes fuller, stronger, and deeper. Not only are we strengthened in our individual growth in grace, but the entire body is built up by a fuller sense of the power and hope of God's grace. The Christian life is not less than individual, but it is so much More. Church, remember that in our efforts to help one another. Help practically, yes, absolutely. But also point your brother or sister to the love of Christ. Father, strengthen us in all that we are. Strengthen us to know the love of Christ. And then the third part of Paul's prayer. As it builds again progressively, dwell in us more fully. He says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is here taking up the temple language that we've already seen previously in Ephesians. In chapter 2, 21 through 22, he said, "...in whom the whole structure being joined together..." Grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. As we saw already in three seventeen, that Christ may dwell in our in your hearts. We saw a couple weeks ago. We saw that Paul used the language about uh, used this the same language of dwelling. He uses it in Colossians. He says, for in him, he's talking about Jesus, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Then in Colossians 2, he says, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then he turns to the believer and he says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So in Christ dwells the fullness of God, and by our union with Christ, he dwells in us, the church. And he dwells in us more and more fully as we are continuously filled up in him that, we, that he may reside more and more in our lives, both individually and then therefore corporately. And look, the, the telos, the end, the end game, Of all that we've been talking about this morning, the end game of our growth in Christ is that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. That we would be that as his people, as the church corporately, and would glorify him in the world. So strengthen us by your spirit, strengthen us to know Christ's love, and then dwell in us more fully so that As you dwell in us more fully, we represent you better and we glorify you more in the world. So we look more and more like him and then through the church, the manifold wisdom of God can be made known because we are a people saturated with his presence. If our highest aim as a church is to glorify God in this world, then we have to fervently seek to look more and more like him. And we must fervently seek that our brothers and sisters who we've covenanted together with, that they be, that we would be responsible. We've covenanted together to be responsible for them. We must seek that they also would look more and more like him. If we're going to be a Local outpost of God's kingdom that glorifies Him, that's a beautiful tapestry showing Him off to the world around us, then we need Him to dwell in us more and more. We need to be filled with His fullness. So that's the aim that He would dwell in us more fully. As a people, individually, yes manifestly made known in our corporate life together when we are viewed as a whole body. How does that happen? It happens when the Father, according to the riches of his glory, grants us to be strengthened in the power of the Spirit and then being strengthened to comprehend the love of Christ and then out of that presence of Christ. The presence of Christ dwells in us more fully. This is the end to which you were made. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You are called, commanded to grow in him that you might better show off his glory to the world. God wants to show off His glory through us, Antioch Church. and in order for him to do that more and more, He has to do a work in us. That's what's at stake. So our lackadaisical seeking after Him that we so often fall into, it's not merely robbing us of the blessings of salvation. It's robbing him of the opportunity to work through us to show off his glory to the world around us. We may think that we're just getting by just fine as we are. I don't, I'm not lacking. I'm getting by just fine. But here's the deal. Growing in Jesus isn't about you. It's about him being glorified through you. So church, I just pray that we could catch a glimpse of his glory this morning. Throw off whatever it is that, that slows us down from seeking after him. We could run to him and thereby, thereby he would get the glory he is due through us. I just would caution us. If this is all about his glory, you should be careful that you don't play fast and loose with him getting his glory through you. And the aim of this is, as he closes, get him getting his glory Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. I just dare say that if you can read that that doxology and not be stirred, then something's wrong with your heart. Paul's aim is that God would be glorified in the church. And his aim is not simply past tense. Paul's prayer is future-looking. He prays that God's people, united to Christ, would bring him glory throughout all generations, forever and ever. We said we'd circle back to it. Note again how Paul's prayer is just bookended with God's ability to answer. He's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. I just plead with you once more, church renew your expectations for what God is able to do in you and in us. We love a big God theology. We have to make sure that the power of God is more than just doctrine written on a page. Let us long for the power of God to be poured out in us more and more and make us look more and more like Christ. We rightly profess that following Christ requires substance, sound doctrine, deep roots. But let us never forget that we need, coupled with that, the power of God, the Holy Spirit. We don't want cold doctrine. We want doctrine on fire, burning bright by his Spirit. We may even look around at the state of the church in America and see all kinds of just like nonsense and gimmicks. But... Church, let us hear, don't let fear of false fruit prevent us from seeking a true outpouring of God's Spirit in our life together. We may be nervous about triumphalism, okay, that sells, this is, this is what we do in the Reformed world, okay. We get nervous about a triumphalism that sells the Christian life as always like up and to the right, Rightly so. We know that that's not the Christian life. But let us never swing so far in the other direction that we find ourselves downplaying the reality that he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. He can do that in us. I close with this. If you're here today and you're a Christian, don't Let the truth that this is a work dependent on the Spirit stop you from seeking it. The scriptures are replete with commands to seek him. Sometimes, having only scratched the surface of contemplating his sovereignty, we find ourselves acting wiser than God, like, your move, God. I'll just wait around until you do the work. Obey the clear commands of God to seek him. Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. James, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Church, seek him fervently. Day after day, you hoist up your sail even while you remain entirely dependent on God, the Holy Spirit, to send the wind to to make it move. You hoist up your sail. And friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, there's hope for you here too. It doesn't matter what depths of darkness you've been to. It doesn't matter what heights of rebellion you've ascended to. It doesn't matter how far you've swerved to avoid coming to Jesus or how long you've persisted in your unbelief. The love of Christ is greater than all of that. You can turn to trust in the cross to save you even now. And if that's you this morning, we'd love to talk with you more. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for all the ways that you have worked in us, God, each and every person in this room that you've called to yourself through all kinds of varied means of grace, God. Father, I pray that you would continue to do a work in us, that you would cause us each in this room to seek after you more, Lord, for your glory. Father, I pray that you would, by your spirit, break through long-standing habits, that you would break through long coldness of heart. God, that you would make us alive together in you, fervently seeking after you. Father, I pray that you would use us as a people to do that work that we're going to talk about next week, that we would together build one another up in in, in you, Father, I pray that you would make that the culture of Antioch. Grow us in that, spur us on in that. Father, do ask that you would do all of this for your glory. And Lord, help us to keep that in our view as what is most important. I pray that in Jesus' name.